Hey, this is Joe Namath, and uh, they say it ain't easy being green. Are you ready? The New York Jets can beat anybody in the world, and I think we're going to win next Sunday. The New York Jets. I think Jet fans. Jet fans. Jet fans. Jet fans. Bird, ready, bird. Very passionate. Bird, ready, bird. Thank you, all you fans. They got their guy. Darnold falling to the Jets. Sam Darnold. That's such an upside. I think Jet fans. Very passionate. Brady sucks. Don't be sucks. Don't an unbeliever. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Ain't Easy Being Green podcast, broadcasting to you live from beautiful, amazing, picturesque Crystal Lake Studios in Putnam Valley, New York. My name is Keith Farrell. I am joined on the line, as always, by the biggest Jet fan in the state of Texas, none other than Michael Garrett. Yo, what's up, Jet fans? Mike Sipes? Robert Sala signed on, new head coach of the New York Jets, out with Gase, in with the new blood. I mean, there's so much to get to, so much to talk about, so much joy in the Jet fan base right now. There's a lot of positivity when it seemed like he might be the guy. When the tweets were going out a few days ago, he's back for a second interview, he's in the building, he's meeting Chris Johnson and all these other people, and then he left the building, and we all went, oh, come on. What, did, we, did we blow this? How did we mess this up? Didn't it seem like... Maybe this is going to be a slam dunkin' for once. We were just going to get the hot coach that everyone's kind of after because coordinator of the year 2019 last year in the Sporting News, one of the top coordinators in the league, as we know. Um, there was a little stress for Jet fans, but we did get our guy, Mike. I, I don't really know anyone, any Jet fans that I've spoken with. You, you're all over Jet Twitter. All our buddies, CJ, Kevin, our homies that we talk to about the Jets at all moments. Don't know anyone that has a negative thing to say about this signing, this coach, this person taking over the reins here, instilling a new culture into the locker room. It seems like positives across the board, for now at least. A lot of positive buzz about him from players, from coaches. And I want to just juxtapose this, how we all feel right now, how Jet fans felt, real diehard Jet fans that know a lot about football, how you all felt when you heard we got him as our new head coach. Contrast that, Mike, with how we felt when Adam Gase was announced as our new head coach. Polar opposites, right? Completely different feelings? Completely different emotions, Mike? <laughs> Polar opposites. I was actually brushing my teeth, getting ready for bed, and I saw my phone just light up and from the Jets, from the actual uh, my Jet app, and said that we just signed Robert Sala as our head coach. Uh, Five-year deal was so excited i was so happy and the main reason why i was so excited i was so happy is because this was joe douglas's pick and that's why i really wanted to get this guy as our head coach because our ownership allowed the process to go forward this wasn't a hire by woody johnson this wasn't some consulting firm that picked out a coach this isn't, this Charlie was, Casterly. You're right, right, Charlie right. Castley and all that. This was done the proper way. The mechanics behind how this coach was picked was very similar to how the Pittsburgh Steelers grabbed Mike Tomlin. Now we'll get into the specifics of how all of this broke down, but this is a leader. Why Jet fans loved Rex Ryan was because of his passion and his leadership 
uh, a high level like he wasn't really an x's and o's type of person um but his attributes on how he motivated people how he brought that that bravado to the new york jet brand that's a lot of what this guy is gonna bring to the city of new york to gangrene nation and that is a lot of why a lot of jet fans are really really excited because not only do we have joe douglas the mountain coming from the general manager perspective but now we have robert sala beast baldness mr green in the house to lead gangrene into the future it's an exciting time keith you know it's so interesting like when i was trying to think mike when we heard we were able to land him as our coach that he's coming in someone that's highly touted one of the top coaching prospects it's like signing a huge free agent almost is what it feels like uh, getting solid to come here and coach the jets to have joe douglas in place a gm that has spent his short amount of time here building draft stocks for us right in some cases mike getting a lot more than we thought he would get for certain yeah. players stacking up picks in the future for us creating cap space for us so you know we haven't got the wins on the field that's the bottom line we all know that but joe douglas i think said when he came in this is going to be a slow process you know that first year he didn't get to do his draft we all know the deal but he seems like a very competent general manager right now and i don't remember a time being a jet fan aside maybe when bill parcells was running everything because he was basically in charge of the whole operation when i remember being as confident in the acumen and just abilities of my general manager and seemingly the head coach at the same time they're both seem like top level guys when joe douglas was before he became the jets gm he was very sought after too chris johnson kind of got himself out of the way here and he's letting joe douglas take over things run things the way he wants to sala came in mike's gonna get to this how the interview process played out but you know maybe what some people do is they say, these are my five guys I like. Maybe some people say, maybe Joe Douglas could have come into this mic saying, Arthur Smith is my number one candidate. That's right, who I want. Right. You know, right. maybe that's what he came in thinking. But then you go, you meet people, you do virtual interviews, you have people come into the building and you speak with them. And you can just tell sometimes when you meet people face to face and you see what they're all about and what their plan is going to be, that's a different thing. And I'm happy that Joe Douglas thinks on his feet. He's versatile. He didn't stick to one plan. I don't know if initially Sala was his number one guy, but I know after the one interview or the virtual interview, he became his number one guy. And we ended up getting him. And, you know, Jet fans, I think, uh, were a little stressed out. Like I said, Mike, for about 36 hours there, we were stressed out. He came to the building. We didn't get him. He walked out of the building. But in the end, we did get our dude. And I'm very, very happy with this. Integrity. He's a great communicator and he has leadership. And uh, I know a lot of Jeff fans may not know a lot about him, his past, or what makes, what has made him who he is. Uh, so I know you do, Keith, such a great job in doing bios on, you know, some of the people that we interview and players that we're trying to look into. So, you know, let's get into it. You know, let educate yeah. the, the AEBG fans the New York Jet fans on who their new head coach is. Most fans might not have known too much about Sala because why would most fans be too in-depth knowing coordinators for every single team in the league? That, that's hard to keep track of, right, Mike? But throughout the NFL, very highly touted, obviously one of the most sought-after coordinators in the game. You know he's our new head coach. You may be seeing some of the gifs of him. If you type his name in and hit gif on your phone and Google, you'll see him getting fired up on the sideline, Mike. You'll see yeah. him getting fired up. And you know what, Jet fans? We missed that. And I'm not saying you got to be a complete psychopath on the sidelines and make a fool of yourself, but Todd Bowles was basically a robot. 
And Adam Gase had, you know, the least charisma of anyone I've basically ever seen coach a team in the history of the NFL. So when it comes to the last six or seven years of our team, Mike, we haven't had a fiery, really passionate guy on the sideline. And it seems like that's what we have right now with Robert Sala, 41 years old from Dearborn, Michigan. Wayne County, that's the Detroit metro area, everybody, son of two Lebanese immigrants, Sam Salah, Fatin Salah, Dearborn. It actually has the largest concentration of Arab Americans in the entire United States, which wow. I did not know. So a lot of Lebanese, a lot of Arab Americans live there. Fortson High School, where he went to high school, apparently is just a beast powerhouse high school where he uh his dad was a monster there his dad also went and played college football lebanon for everyone that isn't great with geography that's a country on the eastern coast of the mediterranean sea right above israel over where where jordan syria is he will become the first muslim coach in the history of the nfl there actually has been two other coaches with arab american blood in the nfl one of them happens to be rich kotite who also of lebanese descent northern michigan university he had a scholarship to 1998 to 2002. It's a D2 school. Got a degree in finance. Four-year starter at tight end. They're at Northern Michigan University. All-conference honors. So, a smart guy. Also, was a beast player. Division two guy. Knew he wasn't going to the pros. It was his passion, Mike. But what he did when he got out of college was not go right into coaching. Was not go right into the what, what his dream was, which was to be an NFL coach. Which was to be a coach at some level. Um, he went into the financial sector at 23 years old. He became a credit analyst with, wow. a, commercial, with a commercial bank in Detroit. Um, and about five months in, he had a bit of a breakdown. That breakdown, like I say, quote-unquote breakdown, was more something that had to do with him. From what I read in the Sports Illustrator article, which Mike can throw on, on our Twitter feed for everyone if you want to read, which I read today, it had a lot to do with 9-11. It had a lot to do with his brother, who was also in the financial sector, also had a job, I think, working at Wall Street, was in Building 2, on 9-11, you know, the first building got hit by a plane. You can read all the article, guys, on Sports Illustrated. It's in detail much better than I'm going to explain now. But basically, the gist of the story is his brother saw the first plane hit the first building. You know, and this will touch a lot of people from New York. He, they told him to go back, go back to his desk, go back to work, is what his boss has said. And he said, nope, I don't think that's what I should be doing. Grabbed his keys, grabbed his stuff, and he got out of there. Went down 62 flights of stairs, got himself to safety, was able to call his family, let him know he was okay. But a lot of that devastation, his brother bore witness to that. And I think it gave our coach now, um, from what I read at least, you know, kind of the perspective that if you want to chase your dream, if that's what you want to do, if you have something in life that you set as a goal and you want to get there, there's no time like the present because you never know what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not trying to give a motivational speech now or nothing like that, but it doesn't matter what age you are, man. If there's something you want to do, do it. Called his brother and said, I don't want to be doing this anymore. I don't want to be in the financial sector. This is about five months later, uh, four, three or four months later, whatever the Super Bowl was. Yeah, about five months later, right after the Super Bowl game, called his brother. And he realized, you know, I know I can make a lot of money doing this, but I want to coach. A lot of people's lives changed on 9-11 for a lot of different reasons. The current coach of the New York Jets kind of changed his life path. It was a springboard for him to get an interview at Michigan State. He, as former high school coach, put in a good word for him. A lot of ex-Michigan State players put in a good word for him. His uncle was a former Michigan State player, put in a good word for him. So he went there, gets an interview there. And Mike, wow. when you're talking about an intern at a college football program, Mike, if you look at the pyramid, Say the top of the pyramid in the coaching of football world is the coach in the NFL. Of course, we know that, right, Mike? Right. The bottom of it, where you start out the very bottom, is an intern out of college. Because right. you're making you're making 600 bucks a month, which is what basically he did. 
so can I ask one question? Yeah. So it was after that Super Bowl win. So you're telling me the first Super Bowl win from the cheating Patriots exactly. was what set him off down I his road? Oh. No, I don't I don't think it specifically had to do with the Patriots, Mike. But just coincidentally, yes, it did line up that way. It did line up that way. For all you conspiracy theorists, uh, that was them, though. That's a, that's very good. Uh, it's very good notation by you. But he got himself, Mike, got himself an interview, got himself a job as a grad assistant, following his dream. And what do you do, man? When he got himself in, this guy just started grinding. Michigan State. He was a defensive assistant, became a linebacker coach, coached there for a few years, moved over to Central Michigan, was a defensive assistant once again. Okay, got himself a job at Georgia the year after that. This is 2005. Now, Central Michigan also, one other thing of note, Mike, is when he coached at Central Michigan, that's when he coached with Matt LaFleur for the first time. He actually was the best man at Matt LaFleur's wedding. Yeah. Those guys are very tight. We know Mike LaFleur is coming in. We're going to get to him in the future as our offensive coordinator, possibly. Uh, But that's where he met Matt LaFleur. Just a note there. He was a defensive assistant at Central Michigan also. Went to University of Georgia. Was going to do the same job there, but got a job there with the Texans. And I was going to say, Mike, you don't normally see a guy get his first job as a coach or even just a grad grad assistant, like we said, get your first job. 2002, Mike, where he got his first job as a defensive assistant there in Michigan State, got the same job in Central Michigan, same job in Georgia. But from 2002, by 2005, he's already in the NFL as an intern. For the Houston Texans down there, um, representing Houston like you are right now, and you're gonna get into some of his NFL background, but it really is, you know, in most of his most of his resume, most of his experience has been in the NFL, because he only had to coach in the college ranks for about four seasons there, and then he was right. already with the Houston Texans, moving up the ranks there, Mike. Right, and his network people he knew his reputation of whatever he was doing in college must have fell on some of the ears there in houston when in 2005 they did bring him in as an intern and i want everyone to understand interns really don't make any money so he's just starting at the bottom right and there was people that he knew who knows if it was matt lafleur and whoever else but started off with the defensive unit and then they turned over on coach and he was retained by Gary Kubiak the following year. And he was brought back as a quality control coach. So quality control is like, you know, they're set, you know, he's figuring out the right plays that they want to show during meetings. Uh, he's told, hey, this eighth, uh, this seventh round pick or this fifth round pick, go work with that guy and get him to understand this scheme what yep. what have you yeah so that's exactly. kind of like it, it's the bottom of the barrel and so yeah mike they basically they prepare the teams like they're looking ahead two or three weeks preparing the team by analyzing film statistical analysis things like that like right like if uh, if we were to constitute it to los huevos it'd be one of the guys that helps senior uh, uh pick out dolphins Exactly. Uh, you know what I'm like? Like that. He, the, guy, the guy that told Senor like last year, you got to look out for this gay guy at the end of 2020 because he's a scrub that will be showing up at Los Huevos. <laughs> That's one of the duties you'd have as a quality control coach in the NFL. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So he sticks with the Texans all the way through 2009, was promoted to assistant linebacker coach. That shows you that, you know, he's working his way, gets to the Seahawks in 2011 and was hired as a defensive quality control coach for the Seahawks under Pete Carroll, where he spins three seasons, including their 2013 championship season when they beat the Broncos. And in that span, that's when he was part of the whole Legion of Boom. 
So let's just understand. Worked his way up through Houston, gets over to Seattle, works his way up there, understands, learns the tutelage of Pete, one Pete Carroll, and was part of that defensive unit, the Legion of Boom. Following that, he was then hired by the Jacksonville Jaguars under coach Gus Bradley as the linebackers coach. And then he went to the San Francisco 49ers in 2017. Um, and in 2019, the Niners were sixth in the league with, in forced turnovers with 27. They're second in total defense at 281.8 yards per game. Uh, this, you know, this year, he really was able to do a whole lot uh, with Nick Bosa or uh, losing Nick Bosa, losing all the different people that he had on the uh, 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 49ers this year, and the unit still was able to be be a, one of the better defensive units. He was one of the hottest coaching candidates coming out for, from the 49ers as a defensive coordinator. And coming into this coaching cycle, now um, Joe Douglas and team knew that they were moving on from Adam Gase mid-year, okay? We're looking like around, you know, week eight, week nine. They already knew it was done with Gase. So they started getting their list together, right? Robert Salah was on their board, but he wasn't the number one guy, okay? So season ends. They start the process. Um, they start meeting with all these guys virtually. When they meet with Salah, Robert shows them his vision, shows them the roadmap to success, explains to them his weaknesses, his strengths, and and explains also how he wants to fill his staff, how those who are going to he's going to bring on are going to complement his strengths and fill his weaknesses. Full plan laid out. That's when Joe Douglas and, and the Jet Brass saw him as their number one candidate after the meetings. Now, this is very, very similar to Mike Tomlin. See, the Steelers thought they were going to be hiring a certain head coach and the Rooney rule had them, uh, you know, have to interview a minority candidate. That minority candidate was Mike Tomlin and Mike Tomlin blew them away in the interview process, ended up getting the job. Very similar here. Minority candidate blew them away. They had a process. They had to continue with uh, bringing in Arthur Smith, which they did. He left after that. That they called him back. Five-year deal. He is now the head coach of the New York Jets. Mike, I want to hit you with a quote real quick from the new coach of the New York Jets. Offense, defense, special teams, it doesn't matter. Salah said this once about his philosophy when it comes to coaching. It's the mindset of the person in charge that creates an atmosphere in which players compete and players fight for one another and players have a genuine love for one another. Now, just hearing those type of words, and I know that's that's just coach speak to a degree, but when you talk about changing culture, if Adam Gase would have said what you just heard, your brain would explode. Yeah. Because you'd be like, where did that come from? You know, not that type of guy. If Todd Bowles would have said something like I just mentioned, you'd be like, wow, man, that's really out of character for him, right? Because they're not the type of guys that were giving you sound bites, not necessarily just to feed the media or to feed fans. I mean the type of guys that you think behind the scenes are instilling that type of drive and that passion in their players, even maybe when the chips are down. Even maybe like last year with the Niners when they had a ton of injuries. The Niners had guys opt out and still across the board, you looked where they ranked 
last year, the year before that, they were number two in the league across the board. They had tremendous stats. Some stats going back, um, they had the least passing yards the year before, going back all the way to the 2009 Jets. So I right. mean, right. that that defense last year, that defense this year has been ridiculous. He took over a defense that was worse than the league. Took him a few mm-hmm. years, turned it around. They had some good players, don't get me wrong. But also, when the chips were down last year and he didn't have his full roster, his full array of talent on defense, he still managed to get the job done. He didn't make excuses, didn't throw anyone under the bus. He is looking at this team in a completely different way. One of the things that he learned from Pete Carroll, this is also a quote from Salah, Mike. Listen to this. He said, understanding who you are as a person, understanding what's important to you as a person and how it applies to the message that you're trying to deliver understanding that everybody has a style and that every style is the right style provided you apply it in the right way i mean these are the type of things that i understand like i said sometimes you just hear coach speak and none of this means anything unless he can give us some tangible results but the approach the thought process we already know that when it comes to x's and o's the guy knows what he's talking about the guy sharp as attack um, very smart coach from that matter. It also seems like on the flip side of that, when me and you talk sometimes about Rex Ryan, a guy that came in with bravado, created a culture, you like him or don't like him. Rex Ryan came in, changed the culture of the Jets, gave us an identity, and he was pretty successful there for a while, right, Mike? And you need to have that with teams. You need to know who you are. You need to know what type of team you are. And I think this type of coach right here, someone who's as smart as him, as good with the X's and O's, as good with with the schemes on defense as he's been, with the talent that, that he's had, also mixed in with the personality that just seems like he'd be a good leader. From all reports, from everyone you hear, I mean, his players will run through a wall for him. That type of guy, that combination, like you said, that's like a Mike Tomlin type combination. Someone that's a pretty sharp guy, but also can motivate men to play every weekend, not just for their contract, but for their coach, which we have not had in a long time. I'm not saying Todd Bowles was a nitwit. Todd Bowles wasn't a bad coach. But Todd Bowles was what he was. He was pretty bland. Mike and Adam Gase was what he was. It's been a long time since we had someone here that I think is going to get fans amped up. Fans motivated. Forget about the players. Just the fans ourselves when we hear him talk, when we hear what his vision's going to be. I think um, this is a shot in the arm for the Jets fan base, for everybody that was hoping we'd come away with him, with a really competent coach to mix in there with Joe D. I mean, all signs point to this just being a really, really positive hire for the Jets, Mike. We went through his background coming up. We went through his background in college. You talked a little bit about his background in the pros there. And one thing that shines through in all those examples is this guy is a hard worker. This is not this is not NFL nepotism. And I'm not trying to hate on anyone that has the same last name as a famous dad or whatever the case may be and you become a coordinator like we might have on our team. Matt LaFleur, now we might have Mike LaFleur. Sometimes there's a little nepotism there. Sometimes guys have a shortcut. This is a dude that was an intern at Michigan State. You know, worked his way up from the bottom. And here yeah. he is with his dream of being an NFL coach. And he's taking over the reins of the Jets. And not only that, Mike, this is somebody that interviewed with a lot of different teams. Yeah. Okay? He didn't just interview with the Jets. Interview with plenty of teams. I think it was six teams in total interview with him. You know the Lions wanted them. That's a hometown guy right Yeah, there. he's a hometown guy. And of all those squads, Mike, this is what I want to ask you. All right? I'm sorry that I rambled on, Mike. I'm a little excited. This is what I want to ask you, bud. Of all the squads he interviewed with, why do you think it was he chose the New York Jets? I feel like we're the ugly girl, you know, standing by and uh, 
somebody asked us to dance and we're like, you want to dance with us? Really? You want to? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, they chose us? I mean, the Jets opportunity is attractive uh, from a cap salary cap perspective, from a draft capital perspective. But I think the biggest reason why Salah decided to choose us is Joe Douglas. I think that Joe Douglas is a very attractive um, general manager to work for because of Joe Douglas's network, his reach, his influence. And I believe that that type of structure under that type of leadership, uh, given all of the pieces that are available for him to mold the team in his image, um, was the best choice for him. And I feel like New York is the perfect platform and perfect fan base and perfect city for him to uh, link with and grow with guys with and and be part of he he seems his his attitude and his passion is reflective of the fan base i've said always that the new york jet fans are the greatest fans on earth and i don't say that because i'm a jet fan i say that because i know the jet fans we have one a 10-year drought where we haven't done anything and yet we sell out stadium year after year and are number two in attendance and we have a billion podcasts and shows and fan you know uh, fan involvement is always at a, a high level even when we're bad because our fans love the team you know I, i'm proud to be a jet fan and i think this guy's proud to be the coach of the new york jets he chose us we chose him i don't remember another time where we were able to get the number one guy. And I'm telling you something, this guy, for the fact that this guy had a finance degree, I know finance majors. They make a lot of money, Keith, a lot of money, okay? This dude walked away from a six-figure career, even more maybe, okay? To go become an intern for doing something he loves, that shows passion, drive, and understanding of what you want in life. And, and, when he was with Pete Carroll, he learned, you know, growth uh, and uh, handling people. That's that's what Pete Carroll is so great at. That's what made the Legion of Boom what it was and how the, the Seattle Seahawks have been able to just cultivate that type of culture out there, that 12-man culture. He's bringing that. He's bringing what he learned from the 49ers. He's bringing what he learned from his college days and from his entire experience right here to Florham Park. And I couldn't be more excited to bring this man aboard as the New York Jet head coach. You know, Mike, the Jets have had 22 head coaches now in the history of our franchise. You know, the team began playing football in 1960. Sammy Baugh was our first coach. Bill Parcells and Al Groh are the only coaches in all these years in Jets history that have a winning record. Okay, so, you know, Bill Parcells was 29 and 19. You know, Al Groh just coached that one year, Mike. He was 9-7. I mean, you run through the list of Jet coaches. Even, you know, Weeb Eubank was a great coach, but um, Walt Michaels wasn't a bad coach. Joe Walton had some good years. Pete Carroll, Bruce Koslick, but Herman Edwards, Mangini, Ryan Bowles, Gase. The one thing they have in common, aside from Parcells and Groh that one season, is none of them had a winning record. And that's a long time, going back to 1960. It's 2020, people. We're hoping our fortunes are changing. We're hoping we just hired a culture changer here. Someone that's going to right the ship in a way that maybe we haven't seen since a Bill Parcells. Because I know Rex 
was it? I mean, Rex got us to two AFC Championship games, and Parcells just got us to one. But I think when it came to the overhaul of the team, I think the team that Parcells took over, Mike, was in much worse shape. And that was when we were laughing stock status and hadn't been in the playoffs in a million years since the 80s. And, you know, we were really down and out there. Parcells held the Jets accountable, turned the team around, turned us into a real team, and left us in pretty good shape. Even when Rex took over, you know, before Rex was Mangini and Herm, they both made the playoffs. So I'm not saying Rex wasn't a good coach, but I think Parcells took over a, a team from the co-tight era before that that was just absolute. Similar, my point is it's similar to this situation right here, Mike. Yeah. So Mar- and it- Mar- Parcells took over a trash team. Rex took over a team. And of course, there's a reason Mangini got fired, but both coaches before Rex had some success. Parcells took over a team that, you know, before co-tight was Pete Carroll, Bruce Costler, Joe Walton. It was a long time, long drought there. Uh, of good head coaching well you know one of the most important parts about a coach is what type of staff and they're bringing over mike lafleur the little brother of matt lafleur who was uh the best man uh salah uh, was at matt lafleur's wedding and that just goes to show you that there is respect and there is a friendship and a network there and mike lafleur would be running what Kyle Shanahan essentially did there over at the West Coast offense. So um, I, I know that everybody heard what Adam Schefter said about Sam Darnold, that there's uh, a good chance that Sam Darnold's going to end up here and learning under that offense. I'll tell you this, a lot of people before this hire were saying that Sam could get traded to the 49ers because that offense would suit him better than what he would had in New York. Well, maybe Joe Douglas said, why don't we bring San Francisco here? That's a quote from uh, uh, um, young Joe uh, from the uh, one of the other podcasts. But I said, yeah, you know, maybe that was an idea. Who knows what's going to happen? That's the next big decision on the quarterback. My personal opinion, I would go with a new quarterback, but we'll let Robert make that decision along with Joe Douglas. But what I will say is that there are a lot of free agents out there, some coming from the 49ers that may head their head their way over here to gangrene. One of them maybe even being Richard Sherman, potentially, who would be actually a perfect complement to the young rookies that we have here. Um, who knows? But I would love to have a guy like Richard Sherman he, I know we wouldn't have to overpay for him. I know that he's still valuable. He's not as great as he used to be, but he would be a good potential add as leadership along with a C.J. Mosley there in the middle line gap curve position. Yeah, sure. And and there also looks like they're going to be going to a 4-3. You and me did a show last year about transitioning Greg Williams from a 3-4 to 4-3. They didn't do that. They stayed 3-4. But going to a 4-3... That's more conducive to one Quinnen Williams and what he was used to yes. at Alabama. Yes, I mean that 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 will just help Quinnen, I think, big time if they switch that up. I think Quinnen just, I think whatever formation you use at this point, Quinnen looks like he's going to dominate. But if you switch to a four-three, you have another D tackle down there with him every play. Um, that could just be problems. That could just yep. be problems for people. And yeah, I got a few things I want to say. One, you touched on Sam there. When it comes to Sam. In the Jet world, at least my buddies, our little, our friends that we speak with, Mike, we're kind of split down the middle, I think. Uh, you know, in his career, we know Sam has started 38 games, and in those 38 games, he's thrown 39 interceptions. You know, he's 45 touchdowns. 
The career QB ratings a 78.6. So not overwhelmingly staggering gaudy numbers, but I don't think there's been any stretch where he's played Mike where we were like, all right, you know what? He showed us in this stretch. This guy is going to be our guy. I think he's had stretches where he's played decent, but I think when it when it comes to the NFL, a kind of wins and losses is what you look at the most. I think that Jimmy G has the contract he has because you look at his career record and it's pretty it's pretty good, Mike. And you look at Sam's record and circumstances are what they are, but he's 13 and 25 in his career here. So it's a tough call. And like one thing I'll say about this is we've debated it with a bunch of our friends this week is that having Joe Douglas, who I feel has done a really good job as a general manager so far, and having Salah as the people making that decision, I feel confident with, with whatever they do. Right. You know, Agreed. and I'm not even, I might be getting ahead of myself here with this coach, but just from what you hear and what you, what he, it seems like he wants to do, and the type of offense they might run, uh, as you mentioned, I think that whatever they do, as opposed to past times in my life where, you know, you're hemming your haw, um, I, personally, I agree with Mike. And I think that I've seen enough of Sam. You know, I don't know if I need year four to think I know what he is and what he could be. Uh, that's just my personal opinion. I think Wilson is showing you in college he's, you know, ridiculously accurate. I know that's just college, but just go watch his highlights, watch the way he throws the ball. I know Mike's in love with him. Uh, Field has shown you some in, in different games, you know, more in the semifinal game, but he played decent enough in the, in the championship game too that he could be a special player. So, I mean, I wouldn't be upset with either of those picks right there. But if the plan B is you bring back Sam, you switch the offense up as something that could help him out when it comes to maybe running the ball a little bit more so there's less pressure on him. You do those rollouts, you do those play actions, let him improvise a little bit. You probably see some improvement just because you can't really get much worse than he was this year. But a lot of that's going to come down to them continuing to build this offensive line because right. this year it was this year it was adequate. Um, I think this year it was improved from last year and the year before. But, Mike, as we mentioned, for the first two years of even doing this podcast, the first two years of Sam Darnold's career, and last year to a degree too, but his first two years, he was just under assault. In right. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intangible or a factor in this equation of Sam that I know can be overlooked, but sometimes you got to remember, I mean, this kid was just – the, the amount of time he had in the pocket his first two years, Mike mentioned a bunch of times. Mike had a whole bunch of different stats about how it was the least amount of time in the pocket in the league. Last year was a little bit improved. Not that much better, but a little bit improved. But still, as we know, the offense was putrid last year. So we'll see, man. That's the biggest decision coming. You're 100% right, Mike. Yeah, and um, you look, look, if they decide to stay with Sam, you take Sewell at two, and you get Joe Thune in free agency, now you have the best offensive line in football. Period. <laughs> you, now imagine you put you put Thune, you put Thune as one of the guards, and then you're gonna have Sewell as the other guard with Fant as the tackle, or vice versa with Becton and McGovern at center, or you draft a center. That's the most ridiculous line. And then you go get a guy like Najee Harris uh, in the backfield. Man, Sam, there's no. And then you get a, a guy like uh, 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 Allen Robinson. Okay, they, Sam has Sam has everything. Sam has what Dak Prescott has. He would have no. He'd certainly have no excuses, right? Oh, there's no excuse. There would be no excuses because that, if, well, so, in that hypothetical, which would be tremendous, that hypothetical you just laid out, if they were able to sign Allen Robinson and also have Crowder as your slot guy and you have Mims, I mean that that seems that seems plausible. And drafting Harris, it's every projection I see, Mike, you said the same thing. You kind of see him picked there down to the lower portion of the first round. Now a team might jump up. He, he looked. A team might jump up and get him higher just off the strength of the end of his season, but he just looks like he could do everything that yes. dude Harris. 
And, you know, one other thing you touched on, Mike, I think was a good point. When you talked about Richard Sherman, when you think about our secondary at the end of the year last year, when we were running Gidry out there and we were running Bryce Hall out there and we were running Jackson out there, we were running uh, Blasson Austin out there, right? When you're running all these young bucks out there, we actually won a couple games. You know, we actually won a couple of games with a whole bunch of first and second year players out there, right? And don't, don't let me forget Austin Davis either. So right. a whole bunch of rookies out there. So we won games with guys that had no NFL experience besides this year, or like Blesson Austin, maybe he was maybe what? By the end of last year, he had played three or four games last year. So he's maybe only 16, 17 games into his career. You add a Richard Sherman to that mix. Now, all these guys are young, athletic. Richard Sherman last year was still adequate. Still good, right? The year before, mm-hmm. he was pro bowler. Last year, he was still pretty decent. I'm not saying he played at a pro bowl level, but he was still pretty good last year. But I think his mental acumen for the game, obviously, he's a very smart guy. But when it comes to knowing what you're doing on the field, he's basically like a cornerback coach, right? So you get him, bring him into the squad. You you have you have Hall and Austin trying to find it out, or maybe they bring in someone else, because I don't think Sherman would cost that much money, like you said earlier. It's not going to be a big-time contract. He's already 32 years old. These guys can all kind of sit under the learning tree there with Richard yeah. Sherman. Maybe yeah. bring in. You'll see what happens with when it comes to free agent corners besides that because they do cost big money. But I think that would be just for him to be in that secondary and even maybe, who knows, maybe he would be segueing into playing safety like Rod Woodson did later in his career. You know, a lot of different players have done that. Guys at his elk, guys at his skill level. He's smart enough to do it, definitely. So I think that's, that's another good point you made, Mike. That's someone to keep an eye on. You know, remember how Sherman was on the Legion of Boom, how he how eccentric he was, how loud he was, how you know controversial sometimes he was. And he calmed down in his later years, obviously, and has become much better of a professional uh, and, and, and much more of a, a statesman for the league. That type of perspective, Keith, that type of professionalism and that type of experience, he can teach these young kids, hey, don't get caught up in all the hype. You don't yeah. need to go. Yeah, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Like that no, is, no, <laughs> who, where are you going to learn that stuff from? Guys like that who bring and 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 having Salah setting that culture with with guys like CJ Mosley in the locker room bro that is just I I think that's a win-win across the board yeah that's a great point with Mosley I mean well he's kind of what someone I think might like kind of gets lost in the mix here right because uh I only played two quarters year one didn't play last year going into his third year here and he's kind of uh kind of the missing link here. We haven't been able to see him play. And he brings a ton of leadership, tremendous player when he's on the field. That's going to be a huge addition back to the team next year. One note here with the 49ers, Mike. When I looked at their stats from last year, and, you know, you can, any article anyone wants to look up on on Salah, you can see how good he did with the the team when it comes to bringing them to a top-level defense. But last year, most of their best players were injured, a lot of them, right? Or they had guys opt out, etc., so people thought it was going to be a long... They had more injuries at the beginning of the year than you could possibly imagine than any team I've ever seen. In the Jet game, they lost 15 players, it seemed like. Right, Mike? Yeah. And they had a guy on their squad, Kerry Hyder Jr. You ever heard of this guy, Mike? No. Familiar with him? You no. know why? Because he's undrafted. Texas Tech. Fourth year in the league. The past two years, played for two different teams, not the 49ers, had two sacks. Last year in the 49ers, this guy, who I've never heard of in my life... He led their team in sacks. Eight and a half sacks for Kerry Hyder Jr. My point, guys, why I'm bringing that up. Certain coaches can get the most out of players. Maybe guys you never even heard of. Maybe there's a dude who's an untapped talent who just needed to hear a few things, be coached a certain way, to be motivated a certain way, to get the most of them. And they can they can rise above even the level they thought they could play at or where they've ever played in their life before that. And I'm looking at this team's stats last year, and I'm like, who the hell is this dude? I never He had he had a sack and a half more than Quinn and Williams. I never even heard of him. You know? Wow! And before wow. that, in his career, before he was coached by our coach, had done nothing. 
You know, he had the last two years, he had two sacks. I just wanted to bring that up because last year, um, you look at the Niners, what they were able to do. 2019, everyone knows what they did in 2019. Their defense was ridiculous across the board. Mike mentioned the numbers before. He was 2019 Coordinator of the Year yeah. in Sporting News. But 2020, and we're talking about a lot of injuries, you know, a lot of different things went on. Fifth in yards per game at 314. Passing yards per game, 207. Rushing yards per game, 107. I mean, that's impressive considering what they had to deal with. Impressive, Mike, considering the division they're in, the teams they play in their division, which are really good. They beat the Rams twice, beat the Cards twice. Their other two wins last year were against the Jets and the Giants, ironically enough. But they held, uh, you know, they held quarterbacks under a 90 QB rating for the year. Jets, just so you know, just to just to give you an example, quarterbacks QB ratings against us last year, Mike, 103.2. Wow. So it seems like everywhere you look, you just see positives with this coach. You know, we we have actually currently Mike the longest playoff drought in the NFL. Yep. It's, t- it's 10 years now. Our last winning season was 2015. Adam Gase, as we know, 9-23. Last year, Sam was the lowest-rated passer in the league. Everyone was bummed out about us not losing enough games. And guess what? We grabbed a new coach. Completely new culture is going to be injected. And it seems like a lot of those things kind of faded away to people. And I think we do have, think about it, we got two cornerstone players. We got Quinnen and we got Makai Becton. Right. Okay, we got two guys on the line, Mike, cornerstone guys. Got some good young corners. We got Mims. We got Mosley. Neville Hewitt last year was great. May. We got Davis. That's a lot of good young players right there. We got two first this year. We got two first next year. $71 million in cap space. And a new coach named Robert Salah stepping into the building. Hopefully, turn the ship around, Mike. Get us poured in the right direction. Get us to the promised land so me and you can see us win a Super Bowl before we die. That's the goal. That is definitely the goal. And next week, hopefully, we will have the Wookiee back. We've been missing the Wookiee yeah, the last two weeks. I think I think he got I, – I think he's he's been sick. Did he? Well, uh, actually, I'll tell you actually what happened is that Wookiee went to Los Huevos. Oh. And he hasn't, been allowed, he hasn't been allowed back in the country since then. This is about two and a half weeks. I think it was about two and a half weeks ago, three weeks ago. But he said his COVID quarantine should be up. I think two or three days from now, so he'll be allowed back in the country. Oh. You know, with Wookiees, it was the thing is he's actually being studied by science now because they didn't think Wookiees could contract COVID. Yeah. However, it's almost back to 100%. So everybody, uh, tweet at the Wookiee if you want here on the AEBG tier so he gets better. Excellent. I, I didn't know that. We'll hope we'll hope he gets better. I know he's he has that. So you know, I don't know if the cough that's interfering with his cough or anything like that. But you know. <laughs> okay, that's all we got for you guys this week, Jet fans. I hope you're all happy. We got our guy. I think there's a lot of positive vibes surrounding us right now, Mike. I'm very very stoked about that. If anyone does want to listen to us, get at us, or support us in any way, shape, or form, where could they do that? Uh, well, we're hosted on the Elite Sports Radio Network. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spreaker.com. Please follow us on Facebook at, at AEBG.JetsRadio, on Twitter at AEBG underscore NYJ Podcast, and on Instagram at Jet.AEBG. You heard the man on behalf of the biggest Jet fan in the state of Texas, Michael Agaris. My name is Keith Farrell. We will get out yet next week, everybody. Peace out. Hey, this is Sean Amos, and uh, they say it ain't easy being green. Are you ready? The New York Jets can beat anybody in the world, and I think we're going to win next Sunday. The New York Jets. I think Jet fans. Jet fans. Jet fans. Jet fans. Bird, ready, bird. Very passionate. Bird, ready, bird. Thank you, all you fans. They got their guy. Darnold falling to the Jets. Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold. That's such an upside.
Because ain't Jeff Andrews. Very passionate. Brady sucks. Y'all feel the suck. Call the number leaders.